This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Brian Nasland, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. Brian writes, I've been listening to Geek's Guide to the Galaxy for many years, but never coughed up the appropriate coin. I figure $200 makes us about square for all the episodes I've enjoyed so far. Now to leave a review and join Patreon so I don't accrue more debt. Keep up the awesome work. So big thanks again to Brian Nasland for his support, and you should all go check out his fantasy novel Blood of an Exile, which was just published by Tor. All right, so now let's get to our panel. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 379 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new Netflix series, The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, a 10-episode prequel to the original 1982 Jim Henson feature film, The Dark Crystal. And this will involve spoilers for both the show and the movie, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Erin Lindsay, making her 15th appearance on the show. She's the author of the Rose Gallagher series of historical mysteries from Minotaur, the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels from Ace, and the Nicholas Lenoir series of paranormal detective novels from Rock, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. Her latest Rose Gallagher mystery, A Golden Grave, is out now. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here, as always. Then next up, we've got Christopher M. Savasco, making his 10th appearance on the show. He's the former editor of Paradox Magazine, and his short fiction appears in magazines such as Nightmare and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. He's also written five Dungeons & Dragons supplements, including The Primal Gith and Philosial's Ultimate Guide to Poison, which are available now through the DMs Guild website. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. And also joining us today is Chandler Klein-Smith, who you may remember from our panel on Creative Writing MFAs back in episode 365, from our panel on Maniac back in episode 335, and from our feature interview back in episode 301. Her novel, The Sky is Yours, about a surreal science fiction city that for decades has been under attack by dragons, was published in 2018 by Hogarth. So Chandler, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's start off with Aaron. So Aaron, how big of a fan are you of the original Dark Crystal movie? Uh, huge. Honestly, I mean, in watching the sort of the making of, of, of the feature uh, on Netflix this morning, I, everybody who was interviewed on the feature was like, oh, this was like a formative part of my childhood. And so at this point, it feels like a cliche thing to say, but it really was a formative part of my childhood. Um, and so much of my fantasy writing aesthetic, I think, was informed by the Dark Crystal directly or indirectly in some kind of way, including, I have to say, a completely uncool obsession with crystals until I was <laughs> considerably older. Like, my parents could not drag me past a piece of amethyst in any tourist town without me making a great big fuss about it. <laughs> so, so did you think um, the crystals yeah. had magical powers or you just like the way they look? I think a little of both. It turns out that it, I'm still a magpie, even at this stage of my life. So anything shiny still gets my attention. But especially, um, but yeah, especially crystal and the sort of mystical properties that it seemed to have. And it, it just, it was this fascinating combination of something almost plant-like and yet mineral and 
yeah, so I was I was obsessed with that, but also, you know, it wasn't until I grew older that I sort of realized the whys and wherefores of it. But um, there's just something so affecting about that hugely original aesthetic um, that goes with the dark crystal. And uh, yeah, it was it was huge for me. Do you remember anything about the circumstances of watching it, or who you watched it with, or anything like that? Not the first time because I couldn't even say reliably how old I was. Probably too young. Um, I do remember, for example, the Gotham being among the first things I ever saw on film that was just genuinely a, a total creep out. Um, but, you know, the whole time growing up, my sister and I used to do Agra impressions at every available opportunity. I had this really skinny cat that I called a Skeksy. Like, it was always a, a pretty big deal for me. Cool. How about Chris? What are your uh, memories of Dark Crystal? Yeah, I, I mean... Fairly similar. I, I definitely remember when it first came out and uh, actually seeing it. You know, to be honest, I can't remember for sure that I saw it in the theater, but I have to imagine that I did when it first came out. And then I definitely recall seeing it on VHS uh, a couple of times subsequent to that in the 80s. Um, and yeah, I mean, it. I, while I wouldn't say that it in particular was like, you know, the formative uh, sort of childhood uh you know, impact, uh, that, it, that it seemed to be, uh, for Aaron, but I would, I will say that it was, um, you know, like when I think back to my childhood, you know, I, I think I have my memories of sort of reality are, are no stronger than my memories of being in Thra or being in Narnia hmm. or being in middle earth. You know, like, I feel like there's this whole sort of melange of, of, uh, influences that all those things had because I was sort of experiencing and seeing and reading them all around the same time. And they definitely had a huge impact uh, cumulatively on sort of the person that I became. So Erin was saying that she thinks she maybe saw it too young, which I, I assume she means that was scary. Is that what you mean, Erin? Yeah, I mean, scary, uh, maybe not in a sort of an outward sense, but the but the visuals were dark and creepy. Um, and so they, like, I'm pretty convinced. I, I don't have an aversion to insects in general, for example. I'm pretty cool with bugs. But I had this thing about black beetles to this day drives me crazy. Don't like them. And I, you know, I have to wonder, does that come from the dark crystal? Just as a random example. So I, I think it wasn't so much scary as it was affecting and disturbing. Um, and so, you know, probably probably some childhood nightmares around that, I would have to guess. Yeah. And so, so then Chris, do you feel like you saw it too young in any sense? Um, no, I don't think so. I definitely do remember being really frightened by the, the, you know, some of the darker elements of the dark crystal. Cause, cause there is a lot of darkness in that, um, both visually and thematically, but, uh, no, I, I mean, I think I probably hit it at a right, right around the right age. So if it came out in 82, I would have been 10 years old. So I think I was fine. Mm -hmm. Have you watched it many times since since 1982? I mean, I definitely saw it a, a couple of times, at least two or three times, probably throughout the 80s. And then there was a long dry spell where I hadn't rewatched it. And then I remember watching it again, maybe about eight or 10 years ago. And then I rewatched it again just before, uh, you know, watching the new series. Was there any particular reason you watched it 10 years ago? Uh, I think more just sort of out of out of nostalgia and, and also this this sense of like remembering it only sort of hazily, but remembering that I just found it really, really, really cool and wanting to see if it stood the test of time and being pleasantly surprised that I thought that it did. Yeah. How about Chandra? What are you, uh, are you a big fan of dark crystal? 
Yeah, I was, uh, I was a huge, huge fan of both this and the labyrinth growing up. I remember that we used to rent the VHSs from the grocery store, um, because our grocery store for some reason had a video rental thing. And, um, just, you know, those two VHS boxes had this sort of talismanic significance to me. They had those like, uh, you know, illustrated covers with like drawings of the characters and then little pictures on the back of, uh, you know, scenes from the movies. And they always just felt like, it was the same sort of feeling that I would get from my favorite books where it felt like there was this whole world contained inside of this, uh, you know, this small rectangular object. Um, yeah. And I, I, it, I think it's really interesting revisiting it now because I do think that my sensibilities were shaped by it more than I might have realized. I mean, the creature design is still astounding. And that's something that definitely, you know, came to bear on the sky is yours that I have these dragons in that book that are, um, you know, they're described as dragons, but then I describe them as having sort of these qualities of kind of like a, like a leafy sea dragon. And then there are also elements of them that are like, um, you know, lizard-like, bird-like. There are all of these different qualities. And I think that when I look at something like, you know, the Skeksis in this or, um, or even just some of the animals in the environment, it's, there is this melding of different, you know, different categories of, of creature. And, um, yeah, this, this sort of free play of imagination where it's not saying let's, you know, let's depict a wolf or a lion or some sort of recognizable thing from our world, but it's something that's just, uh, just completely unknown. And, and that always captured my imagination to a huge degree. So, so, so how yeah. many times would you say you've seen Labyrinth in Dark Crystal? I mean, Many, 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 many times. I mean, throughout my childhood, I watched those two movies just constantly. Um, and then, yeah, I, I guess that I didn't rewatch them for a little while, like probably for high school and most of college. And then I, I think that I probably revisited The Dark Crystal maybe when I was in graduate school. Um, that was also when I went back to things like Fraggle Rock that I also hadn't watched for a while. Um, but yeah, I'm just a, an incredible fan of the Muppets and, um, yeah, I, I saw The Dark Crystal when it was recently in theaters, um, which was really neat. I had never seen it on the big screen before, so that was a cool experience. Um, yeah, so I've definitely watched both of those a, a whole lot of times. Right, so I'd actually, I'll have to confess, I'd never actually watched The Dark Crystal before, um, before doing this panel. What? And <laughs> I guess... This is hard to compute, Dave. I yeah. guess this this is as good a time as any to mention my <laughs> morbid fear of Muppets. Um <laughs> Fair. That's fair. But, but no, Muppets like seriously freaked me out as a kid. And um, I was just thinking, you know, my, my mom one time, she gave me this Muppet-like puppet toy um, that my aunt had bought for me. And I didn't want to like admit I was too, I was afraid of it, but it was just like in this box in my closet. And I would like have trouble sleeping at night just thinking about that thing with its like beady eyes, or not beady like the opposite of beady eyes. It's like giant eyes, like just there in the darkness staring at me through the closet <laughs> door. So, yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know if that's actually why I didn't watch The Dark Crystal. I don't know. There was no, I don't, I didn't, have, I wasn't like boycotting it or anything, but for it, it was just one of those movies that, you know, everybody else watched and I, I guess I never did. And had uh, you, had you watched Labyrinth and Neverending Story and those other sorts of movies? I, I, I honestly don't think I've ever seen Labyrinth all wow. the way through. Um, what? I've definitely seen The Neverending Story because they used to show it all the time when I was at summer camp. Um mm -hmm. But um, no, like th I just I just sort of missed those somehow. And um, 
So, and I, I was like, it's like a kid's movie with puppets. Like, I didn't think I was going to love it, but I, I, so I watched The Dark Crystal before this Netflix show. And I, I was, I was like, wow, this is actually really good. This is much better than I was expecting. Um, so yeah, maybe, uh, I'm kind of sad now. I never, I never watched it as a kid. Um, I guess I should set up what it's about. Let's see. So, uh, you guys are probably, I'm probably not the person in this conversation to, to be doing this, but actually that, now that's a good point. How about, um, Chandler, why don't you tell me what Dark Crystal is about? Well, um, and others can jump in at any point in this description, but, um, yeah, the original Dark Crystal film is set in the land of Thra, or I guess actually the planet of Thra, which is a world that is dominated by the Skeksis, these kind of, I always thought of them as featherless birds, um, but I've heard other people describe them as being lizard-like, and they certainly have characteristics of both. Um, but they're these sort of desiccated, dissipated, aristocratic creatures that live in this uh, this castle that seems to be fueled by this amethyst-like crystal that's suspended above a, a tunnel of air and fire in the ground. Um, and they have historically derived some power from it but that's been weakened. Um, and now they sap the power of the crystal by using it to drain the essences of, uh, of creatures in the world. So they drain the essences of these podlings who then become these sort of enslaved zombies who work for them in the castle. But it seems like the more powerful essence comes from this race of creatures called the Gelfling that they've driven almost to extinction. Um, so when the story begins, uh, one of the Skeksis, the emperor, is dying. And then um, we discover there is another tribe of creatures um, that are also sort of like large and dominating in their environment and have a sort of similar physicality, but that they're very, very gentle and hippie-ish. And they're called the mystics. And... Um, among the mystics, the last, seemingly the last of the gelf, the gelflings, this, uh, this gelfling named Jen has been, has been raised by them in secrecy and seclusion. And he's told, um, when his master, you know, the, the eldest mystic is, is on his deathbed that he has this, uh, you know, sort of hero's quest that he's supposed to find this shard that was taken from the crystal that's in the Skeksis castle and restore the crystal to its full form. So that's sort of the premise of it. Um, and maybe someone else can pick up with, uh, kind of where the story goes from there. Well, well, no, that's that's really good. That's much better than I would have been able to do. I guess one thing I'm still not 100% clear on is how long lives are the Skeksis naturally? Because they've been alive for like a thousand years, right? And yeah, it's, that causes it's actually, the crystal? Well, it's, it's actually interesting. I've noticed that uh, in the show, the new show, that they call it trine instead of years. But in the original, in the original film, I believe it's a thousand years. Yeah. Um, but I'm not actually totally positive about that. What what does everybody else think about why the Skeksis are so long lived? I assume it's because they're they're sapping these essences. Their life seems very unnatural. Um, you know, they seem almost like kind of reanimated corpses. They're so brittle and uh Yeah. What's interesting about that to me is so I mean I think that the the sort of um, canon response to the question would be it's unknown because as we subsequently learn, um, the, the Skeksis and the mystics are actually two halves of the same whole. Yeah. And, and they used to, they used to be completely different beings and they basically separated into their, their good and evil, evil counterparts. Um, and so each one has a mirror image. Um, each Skeksi, Skeksil, I'm, I, the, the introduction of the singular form of, uh, of Skeksi in the, in the show was one of its, more long-awaited elements for me, hmm. but anyway, um, yeah. So, so each mystic has uh, his counterpart, 
um, in the Skeksis. And when what one feels, the other feels physically. When one dies, the other dies. And so for me, a bit of an unanswered question is it's it's implied early on that the reason that the Skeksis are able, although that they might be more naturally long-lived um, than some of the other creatures like Gelfling or Podlings, it's not really clarified and it's sort of implied in the show that they don't even really know themselves um, because in their previous form, when the two halves were merged, they were immortal. But since this sundering has occurred, they don't, they don't really know what to expect and they don't know what death looks like. So they're, they're drinking the essence of these other creatures, the life force of these other creatures in order to sustain their lives. And you see that physically in um, a really interesting way in the original film where when they drink it, some of their, their wrinkles sort of pop up and, and they, their faces smooth out and they're visibly younger. And so the question that arises for me is if the Skeksis have to drink this essence in order to continue to survive, what, does that sort of transmute to their mystic counterpart? How does the mystic counterpart not require that same intervention in order to stay, sustain his life? Um, so it, it's kind of interesting, but it is implied that there is a natural cycle because when the emperor in that first, um, in that first Dark Crystal movie dies, um, in that early scene, it's basically of old age. Yeah, he crumbles we, away to nothing. We don't know for sure that it's for uh, of old age, but it certainly appears to be the case. Um, and it's also, I can't remember if it's outright stated or just implied, that essentially the problem is because they've run out of galflings, they, they're using podlings, and the podling essence just ain't cutting it. That's kind of explained in the film because there's the scene when the new emperor th- that you're referring to when his his wrinkles flatten out, but then they kind of they kind of reemerge very quickly, and he's kind of frustrated. Um, so I think that it's supposed to be that the podling essence is not is not, not the not good stuff, right. yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't know that you know I've thought about that as well, and I, this is certainly not, as far as I know, anything canon. But but sort of one thought that occurred to me is that perhaps in their separate forms, because the the, the Skeksis sort of represent, I guess you could say, sort of the, the, the more negative aspects of, of their, their whole being, the sort of greed and, and, um, violence and, uh, you know, just, just general unpleasantness that, that, that those qualities are also sort of rotting them from the inside. And so that's why they're aging. It's sort of like destroying them. Whereas the mystics, because they, they have the more sort of enlightened, aspects of existence aren't suffering from that. Now that's just, again, that's not anything that I've seen as canon, but that to me kind of does explain why the, the, you know, a possible explanation for why the mystics don't require the essence and, and, and that the reason that the Skeksis do is only to counteract the effects of, of what they're carrying inside of them. Yeah. Not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I actually also think that the question in the original film about what each half of the creature represents is something that as a kid, especially, um, you know, kind of, kind of blew my mind and gave me something that I constantly pondered over when revisiting the film. Because on one hand, it definitely does seem obviously the Skeksis are the bad guys and the mystics are, you know, are, are gentle and, and lovable. But there's also this idea that, you know, the mystics are sort of, I think they're described as being lost in a mist of forgetfulness. And they, um, they're really connected to nature, but kind of to the point of not really having apparent agency. Um, and when the eldest mystic is, you know, lying on his deathbed and telling Jen about what he's supposed to do, it's, he's put it off until the absolute last moment. 
So there's something about them that there's a kind of, um, a kind of fogginess or weakness to them that, that also is connected to positive qualities like gentleness, but, but stops them from being the ones who can save the day. Mm-hmm. And the Skeksis, on the other hand, you know, are really, uh, they're, they're full of avarice and gluttony and all of these negative traits, but they're, they're also, they're also energized and they're also really compelled by, you know, this quest for scientific knowledge at any cost, which is, you know, certainly in the moral universe of the film terrible. But I think that there is something interesting about, for me as a kid, the idea that there might be something in the evil part of a person that gives them animation and life that's sort of necessary for them to be whole and that there's something maybe in their pure goodness and passivity that's lacking. And I'm not sure that I, I see that as much in the TV show, which we can talk about later. <laughs> Actually, yeah, that reminds me of something I want to come back to later uh, regarding the Chamberlain. But so let me just say first on Aaron's point about the singular confusion over singular and plural, watching the um, uh, making of documentary, there seemed to be no consistent usage, even among the people making this, about whether it was Skeksis or Skeksis and whether that was singular, either of those was singular or plural. So I'm just going to consider any word that starts with the letters SK to be legitimate. Um, okay, that sounds reasonable. But um, but yeah, so let's talk about the the show. So as I said, I mean, I um, you know, I, I didn't have very high expectations just going into the Dark Crystal movie, and I was I was pretty impressed by it, and you know. I had pretty low expectations going into a prequel to a eighties childhood fantasy <laughs> movie about puppets. And I was just blown away by this. I thought it was like so much better than it had any right to be, or than I, I had any expectations that it would be. Um, and that seems to be overall the, the response that I've seen, um, generally speaking. So I guess the first thing I'm going to say is, um, does everyone think that this is great or does anyone just, did this just totally not work for anybody? No, I, I loved it. It exceeded my expectations because I was really, I approached this with a lot of trepidation, but I do have quibbles with it. So, yeah. yeah that that sums me up as well. I, I really, really liked it. There were certain quibbles that drew me short of, of loving it. Um, but I will say that I was pleasantly surprised by, and because I definitely did have a lot of trepidation also, I was pleasantly surprised by, I think if, if it's not the most faithful adaptation of, of an old property, it's got to be in the top three, um, just in terms of, of how closely it hewed to the original in its aesthetics, in its storytelling, in just just the craft overall. And so some of the quibbles that I have with it um, are to some degree shortcomings if you want to put put it in those terms of the source material um which which almost kind of puts a, a a nice varnish on it because you know to to the degree that if if you watched the original dark crystal and loved the original dark crystal then i think you're you're going to enjoy this um the original dark crystal wasn't for everybody and for those reasons that it wasn't for everybody it's this, I think, adaptation is going to also not be for everybody. Um, but I personally really enjoyed it. Yeah, well, so let's say what it's about. So, Chris, why don't you tell us what is the just the basic setup for the TV show? Uh, well, it's definitely it becomes a lot more complex than where where the you, you know, you basically had a pretty straightforward um, plot in the movie where and then this adds a heck of a lot more depth and complexity to it. But but in short, basically, you find out um, kind of what the the Gelfling society 
was like uh, before it basically was driven to extinction by the time of the movie. Um, you you come to understand the relationship between the the various Gelfling clans and how they've kind of become sundered from each other, um, in large part because of the influence of the Skeksis trying to drive them apart to weaken them. Um, and you find out that this darkening, which you know comes to a, a head in the Dark Crystal, um, has begun to creep into the land and uh, the you know, the, the various heroes from, from several of the Gelfin clans have to kind of come together and, uh, under the, the kind of guidance of, uh, uh, Mother Agra and, uh, and, and her sort of visions of, of how to, how to combat this. Um, you know, they, they have a variety of quests that they need to go on to, to kind of bring, you know, first of all, uh, remove the blinders from their eyes to the fact that they have been essentially enslaved by by the Skeksis who do not have their best interests at heart, even though they've been led to believe that they're, they're, they're you know, caretakers. And um, once they realize that, they need to basically, um, you know, the, the, the ante is upped when they find out that the Skeksis now have also begun to sap the essence from Gelflings in order to sustain their own life. And so they basically need to, you know, put an end to that as, as best they can, or try to save those who have, you know, yeah. are being threatened by that. Yeah. And I don't know if we even said, but Gelflings are kind of like fairies, um, you know, they're kind of diminutive, yeah. uh, forest dwelling kind of, uh, ethereal kind of, uh, characters. I mean, there's a heck, there's a heck of a lot actually more going on than that, but I feel like, you know, I could spend an hour, an hour going over all the plot, but you know that's yeah really, yeah yeah really yeah the basic yeah, de- outline of yeah it. we definitely we definitely don't have time to to go through every beat of the plot which which yeah as you say for sure is 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 quite involved um and there's also i mean there's i feel like there's so much that the show does right that we don't even have time just to go through everything that it does right but i'll say that the thing that um surprised me the most was how much this reminded me of game of thrones and <laughs> how it had become like from the, you know, because the Dark Crystal movie is, is like more of a traditional children's, you know, fantasy movie, it seems to me. And, um, albeit fairly dark, but the, uh, the show, it seems to me is just, you know, like political intrigue and shocking deaths and backstabbing and, and all sorts of stuff that I, I feel like the show would never have arrived in its current form without the influence of Game of Thrones. Uh, does anyone disagree with that? No, I mean, I, I totally agree. And I feel like the, the issues I, I have with it kind of come from that added complexity because, um, I agree with Aaron that it does seem very faithful to at least the spirit of the original film. But I sometimes wonder if that is enough to support like all of the, uh, convoluted machinations that you're describing. Um, and we can talk more about like, you know, if, if other people agree with that at all, but like, well, for no, example, we, yeah. no, we can talk about it. I mean, but yeah. I, I basically agree with that. I thought that, I mean, one of my criticisms is I, I thought that there were too many characters for me to keep straight. And like at the end, when the characters are all reunited, I'm like, wait, did they know each other? I mean, it was just, and, yeah. and I, was, I was watching the special features and they're interviewing Natalie Dormer and they say, she's the voice of, wait, I wrote it down. Something with an O. Annika. And you're like, who's that? I was like, that? I have no idea who that is. <laughs> me too. Yeah. That's... Me too. I had exactly the same reaction. <laughs> but, but um, so, so Chandra, I don't mean to cut you off, but so you want to um, expand on that? Oh, no. I mean, yeah. Like, um, so for me, there were a couple of things that, um, you know, I sort of struggled with, like, in a macro sense with, like, um, expanding it to this degree. I think, like, 
for me, one of the big ones was, uh, the Skeksis are really one note bad guys in, in both, in terms of like moral complexity in both the original film and in the show. Um, you know, in the original film, like, as I said, ultimately you're left with this question of, well, they clearly did have something to contribute to the final form of this creature that was, you know, torn asunder. Um, what was that? And it makes you contemplate that. But really, like, everything we see them do is completely evil. And that's that's pretty much also the case in this show. There are multiple scenes where they are just literally cackling about <laughs> how evil they are for just, like, minutes at a time. And, um, and I thought that that lack of nuance um, was not a problem in the original film, but when it's stretched to this length and we're supposed to expect certain Gelflings, for example, to align themselves with the Skeksis voluntarily, that felt incredibly unbelievable to me. So there's a character, Celadon, in this in this show who kind of her arc is that she thinks that she, you know, she needs to be a collaborator with the Skeksis, basically, that she thinks that... Um, you know, th- that's, that's the best way to be a leader of Gelfling. And then ultimately she, I mean, it's like she gets so much evidence before she finally comes around. And it just made that character seem like an idiot to me instead of like someone whose arc I was really invested in and following. And, um, especially, you know, in, in a time period when, the idea of sort of political appeasement is something that people, you know, talk about a lot. I thought that like the lack of subtlety to that arc was just, it, it made it feel like it went on for way too long and it was hard to be invested in the character. And it was, it was hard to understand what kind of a, uh, what kind of rationale she had in her mind for her actions. So like there were things like that, that I thought the original source material wasn't really strong enough to support all of the stuff that the show was trying to spin. Did, did others have that reaction to that subplot? Y- yes. I, I mean, I definitely, it bothered me to some extent too. And and I think what, see, I mean, I think one of the weaknesses of the original film, but, but, but I, I say weakness in quotes. I mean, it, it's really, it's, it's sort of like a fairy tale where you're dealing with kind of archetypal characters. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and, and I don't think that that excuses, you know, poor character development or poor writing, but I think on some level, like I came to realize at some point in time, particularly when I went back and watched it as an adult, that you kind of need to approach it that way and realize that it's like to me, what's what one of the biggest strengths of both the film and the, the series are that it's while the the story is compelling and the characters are compelling to, to various degrees, it's really kind of the most compelling part of it is that it's this utterly immersive experience. It's kind of like you just fall into this world. And I almost feel like I could watch an entire episode of this where, you know, people are just kind of going about their business and not, you know, there, there is no plot uh, just because I, I, I so thoroughly enjoy inhabiting the world when I'm with these characters. Um, and so a lot of the stuff that I think I would have focused on and would have bothered me more in a different format, um, didn't bother me as much once I started to, to kind of really accept it as, okay, this is a fairy tale and we're here to enjoy, you know, what, the Henson company has done to create this world. You know, am I, I don't know if I'm making yeah, well, that clear. No, well, not absolutely. Well, yeah. Let me, yeah, let me say, I mean, I, I, I think that part of the problem that they had is that the Skeksis had already been established as these hideous skeletal bird wizard monsters. <laughs> and so I, I feel like, yeah, it, to make that work, to make people believe that 
they like them, they would have had to play into that a little bit where they, you know, they, they, the Skeksis would have to say like, oh, like, you know, we get judged for our appearance and it's not fair. And like, you know, you need to see past our appearance and see into our good hearts and stuff like something to acknowledge the, you know, the overt monstrousness of the, of the character designs. I, I would just say one other quick thing on that point is that, um, I think two of the things that I liked best, though, in this regard about the series was the introduction of the heretic character, because it showed that it was a possible for a Skeksi to overcome its vile nature. Um, and I think that's really interesting that that character's entire arc that he was able to do that. Um, and even more so, I think one of my absolutely favorite scenes in the whole series um, and it was really subtle and only took about a minute, but it's when the emperor is having a conversation with the general and says something to him. They sort of step aside and they have to basically say, listen, I know we don't normally talk about this, but I got to ask you a question. Do you remember things like, like doubt and basically like he's saying, do you remember having a conscience and morality and all of that? And the general kind of grumbles and says, yes, I do sometimes remember that, but it feels almost like I'm remembering a dream I once had. And I found that really tragic and sad because it almost seemed like there's a part of them that, although they rarely are willing to admit it, they recognize that they're evil. They, they understand what it means not to be that way, but they've been cut off from any ability to connect with that. And, and I found that a really, really, really powerful scene. Yeah, I actually, I loved both of the parts that you're talking about. And there's a third one that I'd throw in there as well, which is the scene when the Chamberlain and Rian are in the carriage and he's taking Rian after he's been captured by the hunter. He's taking him back to the castle, um, basically to, you know, the Chamberlain wants to reestablish himself politically by, by getting, you know, getting this prize of this, the Skelfling that escaped. Um, and there's a moment when he basically, you know, Rianne is like, you know, the Skeksis are evil. And then the Chamberlain makes this sort of case for what they're doing. You know, he's like, all things eat and, you know, all things eat to live. And that's how we operate. But we've realized that, you know, basically we can do that indefinitely. And why would, why would you ever stop? You know, and then he gives him the option of getting out of the carriage and running away. And Rianne stays in the carriage. I thought that was an incredible scene. It really shows the power and sophistication of Chamberlain's manipulative abilities, which at times are, are not so subtle. And the thing that made me mad about it structurally is that it doesn't have any plot repercussions. Rianne's just rescued a few scenes later by some other Gelfling, and then he's just mm. back on Team Gelfling. <laughs> but I, I was like, what if Celadon's arc or the arc of some other Gelfling really was like, you know, genuinely getting kind of seduced over to the dark side and then and then going back, but having it actually feel earned on both counts. But um right. yeah. Yeah, and what I want to get Aaron back in here, but yeah, that was the thing I wanted to say about the the Chamberlain is that I he was almost like the hero of the story to me because he was the most interesting he had the most interesting character you know, personality, had the most interesting things going on. And when he makes that pitch to Rianne where he basically says you know, right now the um, Gelflings are happy, they're dancing and eating, they don't know that they're slaves, and if you push this to an open conflict, you're going to lose and they're all going to die. So I'm the one who's on this Gelfling side, not you. I mean, that's a pretty persuasive argument. I mean, I, I thought that was one of his, you know, really striking and effective um, manipulations. It's a straight up Richard III kind of moment, and I just really liked it. Yeah. Yeah, but let's go. I want to get Aaron back in. So, Aaron, what do you think? Um, I think 
just just to go back to what you were saying before about Game of Thrones, you know, I mean, for, Game of Thrones did not invent political machinations. Uh, um, and I think, but I do think that there has to be some sort of level to which that show informed this show, um, simply because it doesn't strike me as a coincidence that so many Game of Thrones actors were cast in this show. Um, and so there's definitely a certain degree of that sensibility there. But that being said, I think that the, the difficulties that we're talking about right now stem from what I think is the, the central um, existential question of the original um, Dark Crystal, which is, is this a kid's movie or not? Um, and I was really struck in watching the making of on Netflix, the degree to which everybody involved in this project was, was convinced that this was a show for kids or young adults. Um, they, they treated those categories as being the same to some degree, which is already interesting. Um, but they seemed convinced that this is aimed at young people. And so to me, the, the problem stems from this, is it fish or fowl kind of question? Because if it's a show aimed at a certain younger demographic, then the fact that it is a bit cookie cutter um, and simplistic in its moral narrative is perfectly appropriate and makes sense up to a point. Even if it's dark, the idea that you have this very cartoonishly evil Skeksis um, and then our two Gelfling heroes in the original in Jen and Kira, who are relatively uncomplicated heroes on a hero's journey, um, that's appropriate and it makes sense. I think the trouble comes when you arrive at the show and it's not totally clear I think some of the ambitions that they have narratively are not appropriate for that age bracket. And so they get into this kind of middle ground where if you're going to tell that more sophisticated story, then you need to lean into that, which means that you have to move away from some of the more simplistic characterizations that existed in the movie. Or if you're going to stick with that more simplistic characterization, you have to lean into that and you can't really get away with some of the, um, some of the narrative ambitions that they were trying to achieve. And so for me, the central problem of the show was not really deciding right from the, from the jump um, which direction they were going to take, because I think in trying to do both, they achieve neither perfectly. Um, I make this sound like a more grave issue than it is, but for me um, precisely, like you could, for example, you could explain away from a writing point of view, the fact that the Skeksis, by the time we meet them in the dark crystal are cookie cutter evil. You could simply have the darkening and the presence of the crystal and the weakening of the crystal as a reason. So if we're rewinding and it's not clear how far in the past, this prequel is set, but if we're rewinding a certain period, you can have the Skeksis be more complicated. Yeah, well, let me. I'm curious. You know, Chris, you have kids who uh, w would you or did you show this to your kids? Uh, they haven't watched it yet, just because I uh, I was watching it on sort of an accelerated basis to get ready for this podcast. But um, that yeah, I definitely would love for them to see it eventually, and I think I, I think that they'll enjoy it. Um, and uh, and my kids are 12 and nine, so I think they're at the right age for the for for this. Um. And they, they've both seen the original Dark Crystal movie recently, um, you know, just a couple of years ago. And then we rewatched it again together as a family. And they both really enjoyed that. Because um, I just think about, you know, scenes from movies that I know have terrified kids. And right. there are scenes in this that are like a thousand times scarier than, yes. than those scenes. That's true. But um, and while I definitely agree with a lot of what's been said about how there are certain things that you, you need to be you tread a little more 
carefully or, or with a lighter touch when when you're when it's for uh, younger audience. At the same time, I, I'm consistently amazed by a lot of the dark sophistication that I've been seeing and stuff that is definitely being made for my kids these days that they seem, you know, for better or worse, they seem to, to be eating it up. I mean, you know, various uh, shows like Troll Hunters and stuff, which again is one of those neither fish nor fowl things that, that you know, like Guillermo del Toro is involved with. And obviously, they're I think they're targeting adults as much as they're targeting children with it. But I think it's it's one of these rare things that, like the original Dark Crystal or like books like The Hobbit or whatever, that I think children can appreciate on one level or on several levels. And there are different levels that they might not appreciate it on, but that adults can also appreciate it on. And then there's a lot of common ground. And I think this is one of those weird things that, yeah, it really isn't fish or fowl. But while in some respects that might be a weakness, in other respects, I, I kind of see it as a strength. I mean, what um, in the um, special feature thing that Aaron was mentioning, I mean, what they basically seem to be saying, and it seems like what Jim Henson had thought about The Dark Crystal was like, yes, this movie will terrify your kids, but that's a healthy experience for them to have, to experience being terrified in a in the context of a safe entertainment situation and sort of come to terms with feeling that way. Childhood is terrifying, and I think that it makes sense for entertainment that kids consume. I mean, not all of it needs to, to be super scary, but I, I think that there is almost like, um, yeah, like a kind of comfort in going through a really intense experience and coming out the other side of it. It kind of, uh, it, it kind of teaches you that, you know, that you're stronger than your nightmares. So I, I, I'm actually like, I don't think I would hesitate to show this, the show to, to children. I guess I just sort of felt like I, I went into it with the expectation that it it was made with puppets, but that that was not really, you know, that that was not intended to like limit its audience in any way. Yeah. I think for me though, I'm, I'm not talking so much about whether it's scary or not. Um, it's definitely scary. I definitely personally don't think it's appropriate for young children. Um, but for, for older children, uh, I, I think it's fine. And and being scary is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm, I'm referring more to narrative sophistication um, and the sort of degree of nuance that you can't be satisfied with sort of uh, a really simplistic. There were some parts of the dialogue that were just, to me, that they were so um, clunky. Yeah. Because they were so simplistic. And it just paired awkwardly with these other moments that did have this wonderful shading and nuance and it's it's difficult to blend those two into a cohesive whole. It's just a very different sensibility. I loved your suggestion about maybe the Skeksis were, you know, still a little bit more humane at this point in the story, you know, that we're watching their darkening as well as the darkening of the world. Like, I think that that's such a cool suggestion. And it also makes another thing make a lot more sense, which is that we're supposed to believe that Agra turned the crystal over to these guys. And it's implied that they were less evil when she saw them last. But since that's not dramatized, even in flashback, um, it really comes across like she made an incredibly stupid decision. <laughs> so I think that if they were maybe more evil than when she saw them last, but still significantly less evil than they, than they are and than, than they are in the, uh, you know, the original film, that would just compute and, yeah. It would make so much sense. And, uh, and Agra for me, and, and maybe it's because full disclosure, Agra is one of my favorite characters in anything of all time. Um, I didn't love Agra in this. Um, I loved the performance of Agra because she was, she was so true to the original. Um, and, 
in terms of the voice and the, the, the physicality of the puppet and everything. But it was hard to reconcile her with the Agra as she appears in the movie. Um, it's like maybe if Agra has done a lot of acid and got considerably older in the intervening period, which maybe she has, but there, there's a certain, she's, she's used, first of all, in the show for me too much as exposition dump. There are, there are too many moments uh, of just Agra talking to herself in which she explains things in terms that are way more blunt than, um, than I think anybody, even a, even a younger viewer would need them. But she also, has a degree of perceptiveness and organization about her that the sort of scatterbrained Agra of, of later incarnation, which is also the earlier incarnation, doesn't have. And I, I missed that sort of humor of Agra coming out of her being that you're not totally sure how plugged in this woman really is <laughs> in yeah, the no, original I, Dark Crystal. No, I totally agree with that. I mean, like, yeah, in the show, she seems, she seems almost like Moses or something. I mean, like, she's like this prophet. Whereas in the, yeah, in the movie, she's like, oh, you can, like, you want the crystal? It's in this bag with all these others. I don't know which one it is. Like, it, and it, don't it, particularly care either yeah, which it, one it, it is. That, that, was, that was the one thing that really jumps out at me is not even being a, that familiar with the franchise or anything, but as, as yeah, seeming like a, a big disconnect in the character. Well, again, we don't need to quibble about little plot points. But to me, I saw that in the movie, not that she didn't care or didn't know, but it was sort of a test she was giving to Jen to, to be like, well, if you're truly the hero worthy of this, you'll be able to find it. It's sort of like the test in uh, The Last Crusade about picking the right cup, you know? Yeah, but it just made me wonder, like, why, you know, at the end of the um, TV series, why did Agra not take the crystal shard herself and heal the crystal the, you know like it seems like you know the character as she was set up in the um tv series would have done that and she gives no evidence of being that all-knowing sage in for me in the in the original movie like in in the in indiana jones the the templar who's standing there is very clearly administering a test because that's his role whereas augra is just kind of bumbling around and in a way that i really enjoy in the very sort of in a very sort of uh, Frank Oz, Jim Henson kind of way. Um, by the way, just as, as a tangent, does anyone know why Frank Oz wasn't involved with this? I didn't see anything about it in any of the articles that I read. Anyways, that's just in parentheses. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Something I really didn't like about Agra in the TV show is that everything is her fault. Like, she is the one <laughs> who was responsible for the crystal, and who gave that up basically to trip among the stars, like, you know, um, care of the Skeksis. Before she discovered um, LSD. Yeah, exactly. And um, I just really, I feel like then if it's completely her fault, then it's also kind of completely her responsibility, which then sort of raises this weird question about like, well, then why are the Gelflings tasked with this? Like, I mean, yeah, like the point is well taken about once that crystal shard is discovered, she seems to have no real trouble getting in and out of the Skeksis castle. So why then can't she just take care of it? Right. She's, I mean, yeah, she's positioned almost like a god in the world of, of the show. And in the original in the original film, I really felt like she was almost more of a kind of trickster character or yeah. like, yeah, um, yeah. Very much so. And, and, and maybe like Yoda. So yeah. and that's kind of what I meant by the sort of Frank Oz connection there. Maybe like Yoda in the sense that that's a facade, but, but 
we see that in Yoda. There's a moment where Yoda's like, ha ha, okay, yes, I'm still kind of uh, winksy folksy, but underneath that, I, I am the sage character. I am the sort of um, Gandalf the Grey Shepherd character in this narrative, whereas we never really, at least I don't remember, it's been a few years since I've seen it, but we never really get that moment where Agra, if it is a mask, that she takes it off. I mean, is there is there not some sort of prophecy that the Gelflings have to do this for? for yes, some by Gelfling hand or else by none. And isn't it weird that that's never mentioned anywhere in the show? I thought that was kind of strange. That like even at the end, I I was so sure that Augur was just going to come out with it, like like she's freestyling right there about the the rhyming prophecy about uh, you know when the great conjunction comes that the crystal has to be healed by Gelfling hand or else by none. That never comes up. I also thought in the original film, and, you know, you guys can tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, but I thought that she, um, you know, she built the planetarium thing with the, the spinning orbs. I thought she built that because she wanted to figure out when the prophecy would come true. And here, that's something that was gifted to her by the Skeksis. Um, you know, I mean, maybe that's not actually what's intended to be the case in the original film. And it's also like, it's not that the consistency is the key thing. But it just really changes her motivation. You know, if it's basically like she traded the crystal for this this cool planetarium, that feels really different to me than she's sort of this uh, prophet, seeker of truth, trickster character, someone, an observer on the outside looking in, you know, versus someone who's right in the middle of the action. Exactly. That's, that's, mm-hmm. completely, that, that's completely it for me. It's just her role has been fundamentally recast and where... In the Dark Crystal, for me anyway, she came across as, um, she came across as a highly eccentric person on a quest to try to figure this out. And she had pieced together her bits of it, but she didn't know how those bits fit into the whole. Yeah. Um, where, and she comes across as being much more omniscient in this, in this series. And I, and I think it's kind of disappointing because it robs a lot of, for, for me anyways, it robs her of a lot of what makes her interesting. I want to get Chris back in here. Chris, what do you do? You have anything you want to add here? Well, I, I mean, to me, what's one of the things that always bothered me most about the, the original movie, and it 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 continues in in this vein, like what we've just been talking about here, is a lot. You know, the main crux of the film is is healing the dark crystal by putting the shard back into it, and it seemed like even in the original film, such a contrived plot device that it's like. As soon as we find out that, you know, first of all, the fact that the mystic waits until he's on his deathbed to even tell the Gelfling about it. And it's like, well, you know, maybe he's muddled or, or in a dream world or whatever, but why did we have to wait this long? And then when he does tell him about it, it's not even like, and we have to figure out where the crystal is. It's like, oh, yeah, and Augur has it. Go get it from her. And it's like, wait. So, I mean, if it's been, if we've known where it is all along, we know that it needs to be used to heal the crystal. How, what What is the... Why do we need a prophecy to, or why do we need to figure out when the prophecy will be fulfilled? Just go fulfill it. You know, why is no one trying even to heal the crystal until basically, you know, 1159 and, you know, it's, it's about to strike midnight and, all, and everything's going to go, you know, to hell in a handbasket. Is like, it I supposed feel like to that be was... because of the Great Conjunction? Oh, right. Like the stars literally. Right. I have forgot to about align. that. Okay. So it has to be. So only during the great. Okay. Well, I, that, that at I least think. answers the, t- the timing of it. But so, so perhaps then that, that could reconcile the question that was just asked, which was even if the Skeksis gave this contraption to her, maybe she was using it for whatever sort of mystic journey. And she, she mentions that it was basically to go out to the stars to, 
you know, basically you know, figure out some, some, she, she, she said she was doing it in some way for Thra, but it was very sort of nebulous. But maybe at some point she realizes that she can use this to figure out when the time would be appropriate to heal the crystal. But I feel like all of that is very sort of glossed over. Well, but I, I feel like this is a common issue with prequels. You know, I mean, you see the same thing, obviously, in Star Wars, where you have like three lines of exposition. And when you're watching the movie, you know, about the backstory, you're like, oh, that's cool. And you don't even think about it. But then when you have to fill it all out, <laughs> just all these uh, contradictions and inconsistencies and things that don't make any sense come to light that never bothered you before, but that were always sort of lurking beneath the surface of the initial setup. And you know, it seems like that's one of the just one of the dangers of prequels in general. But particularly a prequel that is picking up. So, I mean, the, the Dark Crystal is post-apocalyptic in its world. And this show is pre-apocalyptic. It picks up at the beginning of the end, if you want to look at it that way, that we're hurtling towards this apocalypse. And what's really, I think, interesting and, and plumbed perhaps not to the degree that it could have been, is the fact that we know that the Gelfling are on the brink of a genocide. They're on the brink of being exterminated completely, and all the victories that we see in this show are Pyrrhic, fundamentally. Or at least, so we're led to believe. Um, I would have kind of almost liked to see some tr some way of trying to reconcile those two, where the victories that they achieve might be Pyrrhic for them, but but somehow put the pieces in place that become essential for the for the ultimate victory later on. But really, other than having the crystal shard in hand, there's there's no kind of hint. There's no uh, setup for for the ultimate victory that would come, and so it feels just that much more um, pointless. Um, yeah, well, there was a. I think it was Deed at one point had a vision which seemed to me of like a, a Gelfling carrying a baby in a bundle running through the woods or something. And I, I thought that somehow we were gonna, it was gonna end with uh, uh, Jen and Kira being born or something. You know, something like yeah. you're saying that would more directly set up the, the yeah. uh, ultimate victory. For for me too, I, I thought that. But one thing I did wanted to, I wanted to go back to something Chandler said right at the beginning because it was interesting um, about. The, the mystics being kind of in the, in the original Dark Crystal being caught in this fog. And, um, and I think you referred to them as being hippie-like, which was also, I think, a really interesting insight because indeed the, the, the mystics don't have a lot of agency and they're, they're portrayed as spending all of their time in meditation and contemplation. And they really aren't part of the solution. And what's interesting is then you look at Agra who is also, um, set up as spending her time, uh, tripping out on her spacewalk. <laughs> while the world is falling apart around her. And then you have this, this I, I kind of connect that in my head to this moment where Jen, uh, not Jen, sorry, Rian, towards the end, um, he gets into this one-on-one -on -one battle uh, with the emperor and refuses to kill him. Or sorry, is the general, the general. He the general. Yeah, that he refuses to kill him. And he's like, I'm not a killer. And it seems like if you stitch these together, a message is starting to emerge that is very Game of Thrones, which is pacifism sucks. <laughs> but, you know, that this like uh, contemplative, meditative, peaceful state is all well and good. But, but you know, the world is falling apart around you while you do this. And, and you have to ask the question, you know, if he'd if the Gelfling had been a little bit more ruthless in that moment, would their eventual extermination have actually taken place? I don't know if they intended that message, but it's interesting if you kind of connect those three moments. 
Just when you talk about the the mystics being hippie, like I just want to mention this line. This this was I thought the funniest line in the show is is the heretic says we have a wonderful surprise for you, and then the mystic says, or does the surprise have you? <laughs> <laughs> so good. He's like, that doesn't make that doesn't even make sense. Um, but but so Chandra, what do you think about what what Aaron was saying there? Yeah, I mean, I I think that like it, it seemed to me that in the original film there is. A complicated, especially for, you know, the mind of, of a little kid watching it, this complicated argument being made about what makes a whole person. And, um, it does seem like there's a combination of nature and technology, you know, agency and passivity. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, I think that like if, if there's something that's kind of like really baked into that concept of, of these creatures were sundered apart and this story is about like rejoining them, then that means that there's, there's value to both of those pieces. So well, yeah, I, well, actually, I totally actually, agree. Actually, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but that point you were making reminds me a lot of there's an episode of the original series, Star Trek, where Kirk, there's a transporter accident and Kirk gets split into like the good Kirk and the evil Kirk. And <laughs> the evil Kirk is uh, effectual, but sinister. And the good Kirk is benign, but like a total wuss and completely ineffectual. And like all of seems... my bosses ever have been <laughs> one of those two things. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like, yeah, that, that other shows and things have, have, have tackled this, you know, do you need to be able to, and, and Aaron was kind of getting at that too, like, do you need to be a little bad to just to get things done? Well, and I actually think that that's kind of embodied by Deet, who was my favorite Gelfling character in this show, um, who throughout the show is, you know, has that naive optimism that I associate with the Gelflings in the original. Um, she's kind of a, uh, yeah, I mean, she, she's kind of adorably uh, certain that everything will work out in the end and has this kind of like, you know, this cheerfulness that, that always feels unforced and almost childlike. But then in the end, she's the one that has to absorb the darkening and take it into herself and seems to be something that she almost like wants to hide from the people around her that she, you know, doesn't want the truth of that sacrifice to be known at the end. She's like wandering off into the woods and she won't even talk to Rianne, you know, and I, I thought that that was really beautiful and really appropriate to the subject matter. Like, and I thought it was great that it was that character because she is the one that seems, you know, she comes from those caves of Groton that are sort of forgotten by the world. It's like the, the place of kind of utmost, utmost seclusion and innocence. Um, it's, it's the untouched part of this world, the unsophisticated part of the world. They're considered the lowest of the clans, but you know, that kind of suggests that they're just the closest to nature. And then she's the one that ultimately kind of, and, and, and not only does she absorb the darkening into herself, but she projects it outward as a weapon. You know, um, she is the one that does the most damage. She exploderates the, uh, pustule uh, Skeksy, for example, <laughs> which was something that really needed to happen because that was so, so gross. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that idea is kind of there in the show as well. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. And I, I think, I thought Deet was the most interesting of the, um, Gelfling characters. I guess, Chris, do, what, what do you think of, what did you think about the Gelfling characters? And do you, did you think Deet was the most interesting or? I definitely liked Deet the, the most. She was, she was the most interesting to watch on screen. I also, um, Primarily because of her her characterization, but it, there, there's another sort of um, I don't know kind of mundane consideration that actually was probably one of the the if I had to criticize the show about something like one of my main criticisms would be that the Gelfling are ostensibly the sort of heroes of this of this show and they're the sort of the most important characters in some ways and yet I found that of all of the characters on the show, they were the ones where 
the puppetry got in the way of their believability for me because I found their faces so weirdly stiff compared to all of the other characters that it was really hard for them to be expressive. I actually thought that the Gelflings in the series, I found the puppetry not as effective as the the 35-year-old puppetry from the original Dark Crystal. Um, with I thought Deet had the most expression in her face, but a lot of the other ones, I thought it was a really... Uh, inexplicable choice that they made a lot of the Gelfings look almost like they were kind of wax figures and, and had, had really immobile faces anyway. So I, I don't want to go off too much on that tangent, but that was actually one of the biggest things that threw me out of the, the sort of immersion in the world was the way that the, the Gelfing puppets worked in this. I don't know if anyone else had that issue with them or not, but. I think, I mean, they went, they, they went into some detail about this in the making of thing. Um, and I, I think they were conscious of the fact that the, the Gelflings face, faces are not that expressive. And apparently that's why Jim Henson switched to live action, um, in Labyrinth, um, is that the, they had some concerns ar- around that. I personally, um, I thought they did a, a good job of, of getting some, uh, more sophisticated animatronics and CGI in there that, that helped compensate for that. Um, Deet was certainly the most physically expressive of them. Um, I think in some cases they just, I, I suspect that the, the primary problem, I didn't think it was so much of an issue with the main characters. Um, I, for me anyway, I think they ran into the, the problem of trying to differentiate their faces to have so many of, you know, the rando guards and the paladins and the, the, the nameless villagers. They all, they all wanted to have individual faces for them. And, um, and I think that some of those were particularly stylized looking for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, but, but for me, I, I guess one of the, the characterization issues with the Gelfling that, that I struggled with the most was Celadon because she's got a level of sophistication to her sort of character arc or, or a, a darkness to her character arc that doesn't kind of, mesh with that of the other characters, most of whom are quite simplistic. And there's kind of no consequences for her being so shitty for so long. Um, so she, I, I agree with uh, what Chandler said earlier, that she takes a, an almost absurdly long time to, to see the truth. And when she does see it, she's like, oh, well, there it is. And everyone else is like, right? Anyways, that's fine. Even though she's actually made some decisions that have proven to be disastrous for her entire race, there's not really a moment of reckoning there. But, um, but Aaron, who who among us hasn't sold out our mom to wizard monsters? That's <laughs> true, and sold out our entire Let race without sin cast the first stone, so that we can wear we can wear the perfect smoky metallic eye makeup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she she goes like full evil for a while there. Um, and that they maybe take that too far. And I just think if you're going to take it that far, there needs to be a moment of reckoning somehow. You need to see the moment when she's broken. And I don't really feel like we saw it too much. Even, I, I think it would have been the moment where she's, she's in the, um, the chamber at the Crystal Palace with all the Skeksis. And she's like, well, and, she, and at that point, it's really dark. She's like bartering away the other tribes, essentially, in their lives in order for, to, to protect her and, and hers. And, and they they reject every, uh, every offer that she makes. And they literally rip the clothes off her and fling her around. That would have been appropriate for me. Like that's the moment of reckoning, but no, she goes, she gets thrown in the dungeon and she's still telling her little sister it's all her fault afterwards. That was my least favorite moment in the entire show. I it was didn't just make like, sense. 
Yeah, I just wanted to, like, punch the TV. I was like, seriously, at this point, you still are not even a little bit apologetic? I mean, and I just felt like... And Brea just took it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean... How does Brea at no point say, actually, it's your fault? <laughs> well, well, yeah, like, just getting back to the idea of wussy, ineffectual, nice heroes. Like, yeah, I mean, they're all just maybe too nice because... Yeah. Like, and ineffectual. Like, Rian, I love the part. So here's another one. Rian with the duo glaive. So they, they decide, somehow it's, I, I'm, I'm assuming, although it's never actually stated, I'm assuming the idea is that because he's from Stone and the Wood Clan, and there may be the Warrior Clan, that he's going to be the one to wield the sword. But there's never a moment where our three heroes look at each other and like, which of us is going to wield the magic sword? He's like, I'll do it. And, you know, if I were the other two, I would, would have been like, on the basis of your performance to date, in which you drop the sword instantly in any confrontation, you don't get the sword, bro. <laughs> you're not, yeah, you're well, not sword I, I guess the Yeah, I feel like we're being kind of hard on this show, but before we move on, I, I'm going to mention two other things I didn't like. So the, um, the sword thing kind of felt out of place the whole you know you've got to get the magic there's the quest to get the magic sword and then like oh they didn't actually want us to get the magic sword they just needed us to get the crystal shard but if you go back and watch the play they explicitly said you need to get the sword and then you do need the sword to do the turn the fire blue and talk to all the other gelflings so that whole thing just seems really kind of like weird and confused to me well it Um, could have been that the crystal turned it blue through the sword but yeah yeah, but you know what I'm saying. Like it was, you know yeah, what yeah. it felt like to me? I thought it was one of the many moments where, and I don't, maybe it's just me, but did you guys get a Legend of Zelda vibe like pretty frequently? Because mm. I did. And and that thing even physically looked a little bit like some incarnations of the Master Sword. Anyways, that's just my theory. Um, You know, the one one thing I'll say about Celadon, and I, I totally agree, like that, that whole sort of arc really bothered me on a lot of levels, but it's weird, notwithstanding her kind of... <laughs> makeover into Maleficent or whatever it was that she decided to adopt that, that crazy costume. Like, I don't, I don't really see her as having turned to the dark side or become evil so much as she, I think was just so ruled by her own kind of fear um, and, 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 and clinging, you know, fear of what the consequences would be if sort of everything that she had ever believed to be true was turned upside down. And I think she's sort of like one of these people who, notwithstanding the fact that they see themselves being actively harmed in many ways, cling to this idea that, you know, blindly cling to this idea that the government would never do anything to hurt us and that, you know, the Skeksis are here to help us. And so it's almost like she's just incapable of admitting to herself the possibility that, they that they could be evil and and so when she when it's so difficult for her even in the face of repeatedly getting you know smacked in the face by how evil they really are it's like she's she's scrambling to somehow reconcile that with well but well, they're doing this because this and they're doing this because that and even at the end when she basically decides to throw some of the other tribes under the under the bus I don't think, again, it was out of any sort of desire to kind of twirl her mustache and say, well, I'll be the one who comes out on top. So much as, again, she was trying to cling to, okay, when when all else is stripped away, I'm now the Almagra, and I need to protect my people 
Well, I guess the Allmogger technically is all the tribes, but, you know, she's also the leader of her own tribe. And so she's, again, trying to say, well, what, if I can't save everyone, at least I could save my tribe. She just keeps clinging to that idea that, like, this can't be true. This yeah. can't be true. Well, well, let me pick up on that, Chris, because, I mean, yeah, I mean, you have to wonder if that's intentional at some level, because the show is called Age of Resistance, mm-hmm. which has sort of obvious contemporary sure. Valences. Um, and yeah, we're sort of saying Celadon, come on, like the Skeksis are so overtly repulsive. How can you not see what they are? But you would say that I don't want to get a partisan, but you would you'd say the same thing about certain contemporary politicians I might name, right? <laughs> like sure. so I don't want to like get into that too much, but do you do you feel like that that was intended by the um I definitely the creators do. of this show? I definitely do. And 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 up to and including the fact that you could see the darkening and the fact that the, you know, the Skeksis are trying to deny that it even exists as sort of like climate change denial and all the rest of that. I mean, there's a lot of parallels, uh, not, you know, not that that was necessarily what was going on in the 80s, but there was a lot of environmental movements going on in the 80s as well, even though they weren't talking about climate change and all that. Yeah, I mean, I just thought that the Celadon um, arc was important because we're supposed to believe that the Gelflings have lived under Skeksis' rule for, you know, a thousand trine or like probably like a thousand years. And so we're supposed to think that they have this existing working relationship with them that's based on some kind of trust. And I, and I think that like those kind of allegorical elements there that this is supposed to be, you know, about about appeasement or about like turning a blind eye to like political wrongdoing. Like, I think that that stuff is definitely supposed to be there, but then it just comes across as so stupid and implausible. Like even when somebody who's not aligned with like, I'm trying to not be too specific, but you know, (laughs) even when someone who's not aligned with the agenda of a, a, you know, a, a political administration goes along with them, it's always because they think and they have some reason to think that they'll be able to accomplish something through that alliance. And she just doesn't really, I mean, she sees her mother get killed by the Skeksis right in front of her. And then she, you know, basically like they don't even know which princess she is. Like she never has, she never has that conversation with them. Like Rianne does with the Chamberlain where it's like, you know, okay, here's where we're coming from. Here's where you're coming from. Here's how we could have some sort of middle ground. You know, I think that like having the Skeksis make a deal and then maybe immediately go against it would be a better metaphor, you know, like, or, or, or would it work better? Yeah. If Celadon's view was like the Skeksis are repulsive, but they're aligned with my agenda and I yeah. can control them. And she turns out to just be like badly have mis- badly misjudged the situation again to think about current political realities i think a lot of people say well this person or administration is repulsive but i'll hold my nose and work with them or I'll, i can do better work from like inside of that system and then they end up getting like disgraced fired and humiliated you know <laughs> like it, exactly. it seems like yeah there's often that rationale there and that that's sort of what i mean about her going her going too far they overplay that hand for me it would have made perfect sense particularly because she's set up to be such a mama's girl and all she wants to do is impress her mother and fulfill the duties that her mother has sort of uh, hammered into her since she was small because she knew eventually she was going to be the al madra and the way the moment her mom has this this person she's spent her whole life trying to gain the approval of 
has a sword in her before she even hits the floor. Like Celadon decides that that mother mother was a traitor and doesn't even deserve a, a proper funeral rites or any of the rest of it. To me, and and you know, and then she spends the rest of her time having everyone arrested and called traitors, and um, you know, disowning her her little sister. Um, and not even thinking about what what's happening to her middle sister, but so she she just kind of goes off on this really emotional reaction, which I would have sort of taken it personally in a different direction, where she shuts down, and becomes a very cold pragmatist, where she's like, okay, this is what it is, and this is how I preserve my mother's legacy. My mother made a made a mistake at the end, or she was deceived, or something. But that that she kind of rejects all of the things that that were her touchstones. Um, previous to that murdering of her mother and yet still kind of goes through the motions. It doesn't, I don't know. It didn't feel very consistent to me. All right. So I want to like say some more positive things about the show. Cause as I said, I, I thought it was pretty great overall, but um, does anyone have any, uh, any, uh, anything else that they liked about the show that they want to mention? Oh my God. So, so much that was great about this show. Can I just say that this is like the most visually impressive thing I think I've ever seen? Um, just, just the, the, technicality behind all of it and just so so amazing and visually sumptuous and the most impressive thing about it i think too is just i mean i did anyone see any numbers about the budget from netflix because it it must have been a lot um just the sheer scale of the thing and how how meticulous and painstaking it all was having to craft everything from scratch um it reminded me in that way of the sort of the reaction that i had the first when the first lord of the rings came out um just that just, oh my God, that attention to detail and just visually so, so stunning. And I loved that they were very judicious in their use of CGI. Um, they used it as sort of makeup as opposed to, um, you know, I don't know where that analogy goes, but they, they used <laughs> it just little touch-ups um, instead of actually going whole hog with it, which which I really loved. The, the performances were amazing. There was so much about it to love. Well, well yeah, I, I don't know how much it cost. I mean, you probably saw the same thing in that making of feature, but they were originally planning to do it. The Henson Company was originally planning to do it just as a typical computer-generated animated movie. And then Netflix came back and said, how much would it cost to do it? live action with, you know, with puppets and, and so on. And they were like, holy shit. Like we never thought that in a million years, this would actually happen. And I take from that, it was pretty expensive, you know? Um, but I think it was worth it. Cause if you saw what the computer generated one would have looked like, it was pretty underwhelming. Yeah. I mean, I was just so taken with like, um, you know, as in the original, um, in the original, there's like the first tracking shot I ever loved is when you are just walking through the forest with Jen and you just, you know, the camera just moves along and every, you know, every moment in that shot, there's a different puppet that's part of this weird ecosystem. And this did that for like pretty much the entire series. It was just, there were constant surprises and delights in just incredible, you know, a sort of biological imagination. Um, and I thought that that was just, that was marvelous. And, you know, I love that, like, the, you know, the fan service stuff of, like, having, you know, the fizz gigs. The fizz for, gigs, yeah. What, what's up with that? Because, I mean, fizz gig was that creature's name in the original movie. <laughs> yeah. And then it's just like. Maybe yeah, he was my, the last fizz gig. Oh, oh, that would be the saddest thing ever, <laughs> though, because then there's <laughs> only one. Oh, yeah. But, um. No, but I love, I loved having like, you know, the land striders, the fizz gigs, like these creatures that came back, but I also loved the surprise constant of, you know, often just even unnamed creatures that you just see in a shot. Like these when they're background things. Yeah. The most well, me, stunningly I'm, 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 original. Stunningly well, original creatures. On, 
on that, like the cat, I don't even want to go through the cast, but it's it's like it's like Meryl Streep as the mushroom in the background. I mean, it's like <laughs> yeah, that's a fanciful example, but I mean, every like it's just an unbelievable cast for for some of the roles, which are tiny too. They have these, you know. Big name actor. Like Eddie Izzard, it was so underutilized. I kept expecting those guys to come back. Did did anybody catch that guy? I, I had to look it up. So I love Eddie uh, Izzard. He was so you know Eddie Izzard, the comedian, the British comedian. Yeah, which which character he, he was the pirate king who loses his memory. Oh, that's him. Okay, yeah, awesome. Right at the beginning. Yeah. And I totally expected him to come back at some point because I just really wanted more Eddie Izzard as a pirate king, obviously. It um, actually shows him at the very end. That yeah. character is with... So I was. I actually thought, oh, I wonder if he got his memory back. Like, I wonder what's going on with that character. So maybe in the next season, he'll be, you know, recurring. Is there another season? I thought that it, there is going to be another season, isn't there? Or Well, they certainly that? set it up to. That was a question I wanted to ask at the end. I mean, it seems like a weird thing to leave Deet hanging, just kind of walking off into the wood, turning things purple around her. Or like, you know, th- there were a few little details that they threw in that I was just like, wait, are they setting this up for a sequel now? Like, or, you know, a season two? And I'm not yeah. sure if I, I haven't seen anything that explicitly said that unless yeah, I that. haven't heard if there's going to be a season two or not or whether they intended to set it up for one. But I mean, probably I would imagine given the expense of this, they're going to have to see how it does before they sure. make a decision on that. But yeah, like even like that, um, that guy who was riding the flying manta ray in the sky, who was like had the hots for Deet. Like, no, for for Bria actually. Oh, or sorry. Bria, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I, I was wondering if something was going to develop between those two as well. But yeah, I was like, what is he even doing? And if there's no season two, it's like, it, it seems like some of those things were put in with the intention of developing them down the line because they seem to not serve a whole lot of purpose. Uh, I think the problem is, it, like, there. <laughs> I wasn't 100% satisfied with how they connected all the dots to from where we end up to where we open at the Dark Crystal movie. Like, there's still a few unanswered questions, I think. But at the same time, you know, the... The, the danger is, as, as someone mentioned earlier, the closer you get to the movie, the more impossible it's going to be to have any sort of a fulfilling ending, because it's going to have to end with literally every character we know being slaughtered, you know, um, with, with, with the exception of a couple of them, like Agra. But um, and so that that would be an incredibly depressing way to end a series. Uh, but I don't know, I kind of feel like they're de- they're definitely they've definitely planted the seeds for it. And I I think I'd be down for another season of it, but I don't know. I guess it depends on what they do with it, obviously. I mean, they've spent all this money on that set. Might as right. well. <laughs> right. For all of my frustrations with it, like, I will watch the hell out of the next season. Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like we were talking about, like, the, the visuals of it. I mean, you, you know, there's moments, like, in, in the Fellowship of the Ring movie and stuff, you know, or, or movies like that where, you know, you have these moments where you sort of gasp because you're just astounded by some something on the screen. And I kind of feel like I was gasping from beginning to end of every one of these episodes. It was just a constant, like, you know, that whatever that sense of wonder button was being pushed for me, like, you know, six times in every scene uh, in, in the entire series. I mean, it's really, really, really astounding how rich, like, every set piece was and every and even and not only just the visuals but i loved a lot of the little creative flourishes that were put into this i mean things like the stone golem and the uh 
the you know the 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 moths that open the secret entrance under the throne yeah, and yeah, yeah. i mean you know you could go on there's like hundreds of those little little creative flourishes that you know they could have had it just be you push a button but instead it was this amazing scene with the moth and yeah. it was, you know that's what i mean too like i i think it's really rare to see such a tremendous feat of imagination paired with an equal achievement on the technical level and the painstaking uh, degree to which they inserted every hair individually and every thread of moss. Usually, I mean, to, to the degree we ever see that kind of craft at all, all too often it's paired with uh, a narrative structure or visuals that are lacking something in the way of imagination. Um, I mean, maybe a good example of this, um, you know what, I'm not even going to say it, never mind. Uh, I don't want to trash another property, but there there are examples I think we could probably all come up with of things that are are really visually beautiful and imaginative, um, but but you know they kind of they they lack the 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 professional polish of this well, or the well, reverse. Let me say, in that um, special features thing, I thought it was hilarious, some of the titles of the people, the job titles. Oh, me too. So there was the senior fur slash hair tech. That's the one I came up with. I'm like, she's not just the fur fur tech, she's the senior fur tech. <laughs> and then there's the second assistant puppet captain, <laughs> which was kind of, it was kind of funny because all the other ones that I noticed, they just said puppeteer, but one guy is the second assistant puppet captain, and I was wondering if he, uh, you know... Did a little, you know, gave kind of a more, more grandiose title or is a puppet captain different from a puppeteer? You know, it just gives you this sort of sense of this whole like world that I know nothing about of what it takes to get a hundred people together to do a puppet show like this. And honestly, although I'm not sure it's worth an hour and a half, the making of is, is totally worth watching because puppet captain is super appropriate to the degree that some of these puppets were almost like ships. You know, you, you saw the inside of them and with all these monitors and switches and buttons and just, and it takes, you know, the, the Golem character takes three people to operate. Um, just the sophistication of that is staggering and just, just the physicality yeah. of it. Like it looks physically exhausting to make and, and this it was, show. It was cool that I didn't know the puppeteers inside those, these giant costumes will have a monitor with four screens on it showing the different cameras so they can see how their performance is coming across on all the different cameras. It was, it was really, you know, cool and involved how, how they do it. And I absolutely loved this, totally loved the, the, that sort of meta shout out to puppetry in general when <laughs> up on the mountain they have a puppet show within the puppet show. <laughs> that <laughs> when, was so amazing. That with finger was just puppets. fantastic. Finger, but also the fact that it was sort of like a little montage of all so many different forms of puppetry. You had shadow puppets and, and yeah, finger true. puppets and and marionettes and different things, and it was just like, wow, that is that is that is like upping the, you know, that that was just amazing. That was really really amazing when that yeah, when that whole cool. scene unfolded. You know, the one thing on the sort of artistry of it that did disappoint me a little bit um, is I think they really underutilized that amazing score from the original Dark Crystal. Um, they, they really just give some of those strains. I, and I don't know, maybe it was a rights thing. I can't imagine it would be, but they, they did some of those strains. Um, you know, they never have credits for the show, but there's always that moment when the title comes up. And usually around that moment, you have that, that familiar strain of, of the original Dark Crystal. But there's a whole score that goes into that movie that is just beautiful and sumptuous and really epic sounding. Um, that kind of, 
for those of us with the nostalgia for it, would just sort of raise the hairs on the back of your neck. And it never really comes into it in the show. There's nothing wrong with the score they use. I quite like it. But I would have liked to hear more of that original score in there. It's just a small thing. You know, my boyfriend actually noticed that, and I couldn't unhear it once I heard it, but that there's this theme that they keep playing throughout the show that sounds like the Tears for Fears song, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Did anyone else notice that? Yes, and, we and were, I've been singing it for days. Oh, my God. And and yeah, and we were wondering, maybe it was intentional because this is kind of about a battle for who controls the world of Thra, <laughs> but like, it, it if that was what they were doing intentionally, I think it was kind of cheesy and not the best choice because it's just kind of evokes something that's so outside the world of the story. I don't know. Um, I didn't hate it or anything, but... Once I he pointed even, that out, I couldn't stop hearing it. I didn't even notice. I seriously have been singing that song for days and asking myself why. <laughs> and now That's I why. know. <laughs> I guess one of the last things I want to ask here is that, um, you know, I feel like I, I feel like some of my enjoyment of, of watching this was, you know, undermined by just constantly thinking the whole time, well, yeah, but they all get killed, they all get slaughtered, There's, you know, it all ends in genocide. So all, all this stuff is kind of pointless. I already know it turns, it ends up in disaster. And I wonder that now that this exists, if you should watch this first and then watch the feature film, The Dark Crystal. And I'm just, I thought I'd throw that out there. Um, or do you think that this is so sort of like contingent on the, uh, on knowledge of the, of the original film to enjoy? I think probably personally, this is one of the few ones where you could watch it in the chronological order simply because, because it is so faithful to the original aesthetic and the puppets are so similar, if not identical, and the voices are so similar, if not identical. I think it's, it's not going to suffer from that. I mean, usually when you make two films 30 years apart, the difference in technology is visually shocking, um, where you probably wouldn't have to, to the same degree that reaction now. Um, but just to go back to what you're saying, Dave, I, I think that's what I'm saying about um, it would have been nice if they had just given us a few breadcrumbs of hope so that those of us who do know what happens in the Dark Crystal the movie um, and we know something of the apocalypse to come, we can see these little threads of hope where it makes it their actions seem less meaningless. So even if we know they're going to die, their lives have served a purpose for the survival of their world. All right, so we're pretty much out of time here. So um, why don't we go around to get some final thoughts. If there's anything you didn't get a chance to say, you can uh, say it now. Uh, so, Chris, any final thoughts? Uh, gosh, I, I feel like I may have said everything I want to say. <laughs> I mean, I will say, though, that notwithstanding the fact that we were, you know, occasionally quibbling and griping about things, again, as I said at the beginning, overall, I absolutely love this. And, you know, whatever quibbles I had were far, far, far outweighed by all the things that I absolutely loved about this. So... You know, um, I just want to make make sure that that comes through clearly. Yeah. Uh, Chandler, any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that like if if anything, you know, I I did mean to talk a little bit more about the lore character. I really love when you know instead of yeah, like just having it literally be a key or a map or something, they actually create this like personified pile of rocks to like get them from one location to another. Like I thought that you know, yeah, a lot of that connective tissue was just so thoroughly imagined. Um, so yeah, I think that like, I would love to see another season and I think that they should have even more fizz gigs next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the, the lore character was really cool because his, um, his physical design was very asymmetrical and it didn't look like any other rock man yeah. that I've ever seen in a fantasy thing mm -hmm. before. Uh, Aaron, final thought. Yeah. And I loved the way he spoke. 
I mean, it was so, everything about this world is so original. But yeah, he speaks with basically a, a rotating cylinder with grooves on it, like a record player. He puts a pointy finger down on, on his forearm to, to speak through this, this recording. I mean, it's just, it's such a brilliantly interesting idea. Um, and that's, I, I mean, it's a good segue to, I just, I don't think you're going to find a more imaginative property out there. So if you're a fantasy fan in that sense, that you want a fully realized world with its very layered um, mythology and just that's visually transportative in a way that few fantasy properties achieve, avoiding almost all of the sort of physical tropes that we've gotten used to in epic fantasy. I mean, this is just... This is just absolutely candy, this show. Yeah, and I mean, I, I feel we talked a lot about ways that we would change the story, which, I mean, it's, you know, happens when you get a bunch of professional writers together. But, yeah, I just want to reiterate that this is just so much better than, again, it has any right to be here than I had any expectations it would be. And just the idea, I think in 1982, if you had told someone you would have a 10-episode Dark Crystal series with this level of production values and this level of quality, it's just like something that was unimaginable back then. Um, and so again, I'm just really pleased that this happens and, and that we get to watch it. It's just, uh, um, we should really all, exciting. we should all go out and buy the Funko pops because they look amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. All right, cool. So I think that's a good note to end on. So we've been speaking with Aaron Lindsay, Christopher M. Savasco and Chandler Clang Smith. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Aaron Lindsay, Christopher M. Savasco, and Chandler Clang-Smith for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends... If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.